Hey guys, thanks for joining us for this 11th episode in Season 3 of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. Special guest on this episode is Rich Kirkpatrick. He's a musician, speaker, consultant, and author, and has a new book, Mind Blown, Unlock Your Creative Genius by Bridging Science and Magic. We'll also share a few stories of the day as well. Of course, if you would, please take the time to subscribe, comment, leave some feedback, and share with your friends. And be sure to follow us on all the socials, and if you have a special guest idea, just email me, gqwithcam at gmail.com. Now, don't lie on your resume about this because you probably won't enjoy the gig. Now, do you love pumpkin spice? Well, if so, there's a new job opening for a pumpkin spice taste tester. A website called Finance Buzz will pay someone $1,000 to try all of the pumpkin-flavored products that Trader Joe's is stocking this fall. Now, you also have to rate each one. Now, the actual job title is Pumpkin Spice Pundit. You'll have to try dozens of products, everything from pumpkin waffles to their pumpkin-stuffed ravioli and samosas. And then you'll have about two weeks to do it. Now, you need to be 18 or older to apply, and you have to live close enough to a Trader Joe's to shop in person. Now, on top of the $1,000, you'll get a $500 gift card to buy everything. Now, you have from September 2nd to the 18th to try it all and review each item. And if you're interested, you've got until Sunday to apply at financebuzz.com. Well, lots of people complain about Gen Z, which is anyone born from around 1996 to 2012, but now they're doing it to themselves. Someone on Reddit asked Gen Zers to name things that they dislike about their own generation. And here are a few highlights. Number one, acting like bullying is outrageous then just doing it online instead. Number two, the quote, insatiable need for attention. Number three, the dumb online trends like the Tide Pod Challenge. Number four, the cringy slang like slaps and OK Boomer. Number five, all the vaping and then acting like there's no way it could be bad for you. Number six, getting offended by everything so easily. And number seven, thinking that the world can be changed by posting TikTok videos. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with our special guest, Rich Kirkpatrick, right after this. All right, guys, promise you another very special guest uh, on the podcast today. And, and you know, he and I became friends, man, it's been uh, probably 15 years, almost 15 years ago uh, in, wow. in the world of of uh, worship leading is kind of how we we caught up originally. Uh, Rich Kirkpatrick is his name, and he's got his second book to, that we're going to be talking about, Mind Blown. I'm excited to talk about this and and many other things. Rich, first off, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Oh, this is great. And naming those years out there makes me feel so young. Thank you. <laughs> I know that, right? Now, now the, uh, the, the process of, of Mind Blown, I mean, were you looking to write whenever the the idea came to you or were you maybe a little hesitant to go into the creativity process if you will i don't think i could help it i think it found me mm -hmm. and when i wrote that book the first book six hats of the worship leader is when i got this idea so maybe a decade ago almost and so it just kind of haunted me that you know everybody says this is how you should be more creative and they were right but i said but why 
So I was like, I want to be a nerd. I want to know why, because I'm kind of ornery too. Why are you saying this? <laughs> For you, the, uh, the the creative process, as you delved into this, how how much has your mind changed about the process and the ability of everybody to have some level of creativity as well? I think what it's done is it showed me why in certain work situations I'd get frustrated. Um, it's not so much that people mean to frustrate you, although there's a rare occasion there's a person like that. But when you're a quote creative person where you're just trying to, you know, like music, which I did music, you have to come up with new stuff. And yeah, the church, you got a new Christmas show every Christmas. You got to be, you know, you have to be creative. Otherwise, you know, that's your job. So, but a lot of people don't understand that. And I didn't know how to even advocate for, well, this is why I need this as part of my process. I need to go, for instance, look at different stages to see what Christmas show should look like. Mm. And so that's kind of part of the process is, is just intaking things so you can have output basically. And uh, this is something that I I've dealt with whenever you have hardships in life, I've had such a hard time finding that creative juice. I mean, how do you fight through those times and, and still allow those uh, dreams, the magic, if you will, to, to, to influence your life? I think that what, what I learned was sometimes we may appear to be the antagonist. And I talk about that in the book, um, but it's really thought patterns. And we can look at these thought patterns um, that are negative, actually and turn them around to be positive. And that's why some of the best songs are these breakup songs. That's a good example of what we can turn <laughs> into a positive. And actually, creativity is healing. It actually allows us to document what we're really feeling and even if it's not something that's an art, it could be just our work or how, how we do and approach our life. And so I talk about that in the book about your antagonist. Well, don't really blame yourself. Look at these thought patterns and then call them out and say, you know, first, for instance, should haves. Those are Mr. Should have, I think I call them. You know, it's like you got to tell that guy, no, you know, it, you, you can't live on should haves because you could say that about anything. And, and someone like me, obsessive, your mind goes around and around. <laughs> I should have done this. I should have not done this. And it doesn't go anywhere. But then I think, but what if, if I start changing that question, that feeling of negativity can turn into something like, well, maybe I want something better. And that really is where you turn the juice from inwardly kind of like, like the lid on it. Say, so take the lid off somewhere where it could go. And that's what creativity does. And being in the, the faith industry, if you will, over, over the last many years, uh, how can just the average American as well tap into their creativity? Well, I, first of all, I think, you know, and I address that in the book that really brain scientists, this is a whole field of study mm. that they have documented that we are unlike any other animal. Check my footnotes on it. I got a little bit of footnotes, which is kind of a little nerdy. <laughs> um, check the footnotes out. Brain scientists say there is no other brain of any creature on the planet that like ours that mashes things together and comes up with something unique. And, and that's the creativity that we have. And so scientists would say every one of us has this capacity because our brains are, are, are wired to do this. And then we have academics who are saying, you know, on psychologists and people who studied how this, you know, like take people like Picasso, how does he, how did he do all that? Um, and they actually have found out this process, which is kind of called the creative process. And so, it is a human process. It's how people are. So you can take it from a faith perspective thinking, you know, which, you know, I'm a person of faith. And so I, I take it from that, but I also take it from, you know, this idea of science. Like, you know, I wanted to know why then 
uh, is there a way to, it's one thing to say, you know, uh, a good attitude helps you feel better, but what if, what's that chemical? Is it serotonin? And I think in the same way, I wanted to look at the creative process the same way. Speaking uh, on the faith side of things, having science and, and magic in, in the title of your book, I mean, how hard was that to, uh, to, what was the feedback you got from that originally? I got a couple really super conservative friends that said magic and then actually some <laughs> honestly is science. So they were really not, but I look at it this way, those are metaphors. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, science is the metaphor for logic. And magic is a metaphor for imagination. In fact, the same word for imagination comes from where we get the word magic. And there's a science to magic and a magic to science. There's some mystical calling, like people who become scientists, which I had a friend who was a pastor I worked for for years. He was a two PhDs from MIT, a scientist. Wow. He would go around the world teaching Dr. Mark Porter. He would go around the world teaching um, a scientist how to use his technology of water membrane filtration. So really important. But his mystical, powerful compulsion to help people clean water allowed them to form this technology. You think scientists aren't, you know, driven by that? Some people become doctors, for instance, because they had a family member who was sick. Mm-hmm. So I think in the same way, it's the, these two things that really are connected. You know, um, in fact, imagination, one Dr. Shelley Carson, who I quote in the book, she has a wonderful book about this, which is really thick. But she said imagination is logical because the judgment centers of your brain are in, in play. So you stand next to a cliff, your whole body starts to tighten up, your stomach going, ooh, you know, because I don't like heights, so I might be extra than everybody. But what she says is that's your, your judgment centers of your brain, the logic, the part that we're supposed to trust a little bit, telling us that you could be in danger. You're not, but you could be if like someone pushed you or, and so we have this feeling. So what we've done sometimes in our society, even as we've kind of trying to take things that look opposing and create a dichotomy out of them, really they're connected in a way. And the genius is in seeing the bridge between the things that we think are opposite a lot of times. And really they're what is called a false dichotomy. I could be both emotional and extremely logical. I could be empathetic and feel for some of it, but also be very practical. Mm. And so that's kind of how I look at creativity. So for you, what is, what is the, the sticking point in the creative process personally? I think, you know, I have these three steps, which is the dream, the sandbox story, and that's where you uh, discover your idea and the dreaming it, and then you kind of develop it and iterate it. And then the last ones you get out to the world. I think getting out to the world's really the hard part. It's like imposter syndrome. You know, why <laughs> should it be me getting out here? And I, and being on, you know, Cameron's podcast, you know, why, why should I do these things? So I think that's the one I get hung up on the should haves. Um, the, the, those negative emotions, like a lot of people have dreams they may maybe like me and they might even be smart about, Hey, this could be done, but they then think, well, maybe this is not the season. Maybe, you know, they start questioning. And so for me, I think that's the part of it and why a book like this took me, you know, several years to finally start writing and then finish it. And, and in studying for it, uh, the imposter syndrome, how many times did you hear others talk about dealing with that imposter syndrome on their own? Um, I, I think everybody feels uh, some sense of humility, which I think is good in that sense. Because I think when you start to realize, like as a musician, in high school, I was like the best musician. I went to music school. I was not the best. Musician. <laughs> and I started to be more humble about what it was. I was still a good musician, but I was just like a good musician. I think as you study, you realize there's so many great things written about this. And it's humble and wonderful to put a, a citation in a book towards somebody you know, someday maybe my book will be cited, but, um, 
And I think part of that is embracing that humility, thinking this is where that fine line is that I lean into um, something I believe in, even if I don't feel like I have power in it. That's where the power comes from. It comes in that vulnerability of saying, yes, I'm a voice. So what if this isn't the most original idea, but it's me doing it in this moment and there's no other me around to do it. So why not? And you mentioned one of the, one of those words being transparent and uh, open. Uh, mm-hmm. How hard is that as as a male? I, I know we're uh, we're both in the same age uh, age range as well. How hard is it to be more transparent, like uh, like everybody out there says uh, they want you to be? I think what it is it's a it's a it's a skill. Um, and I, I go in the book. I talk about this concept of divergent thinking and convergent thinking. We're trained for convergent thinking, which is find the most one practical thing to do. So we take all the things we have around us and sort them to one thing. Here's the one thing you should do. Like, Rich, don't play piano. That's Find a career you could fall back on, right? That's the convergent thinking. The divergent thinker is dreaming and asking what if and what if, even when it gets scary, like this is a great idea, but I might lose my job. Or this is a great idea, but some people aren't going to like me for it. And it's, and it's really allowing that divergent thinking to happen. And divergent thinking is... The, the cognitive disinhibition. It's when I'm able to kind of take the, um, my thoughts and open my mind, but I'm not losing my mind by the way, but I'm opening my mind to different ways of thinking. And I just wrote an article in my blog called embrace the awkward because part in the talk of this in the book, this, this whole idea, are we willing to sit at the table with people who they just don't think like us? And, you know, am I able to value them even if I'm offended? Um, that's humility. And that requires an open mind. So, Really, imagination is a muscle, and that's kind of a theme in the book uh, with the idea of magic, is we need to learn um, to embrace. And I think men, you know, a lot of us, we probably like everyone else in class, like the girls, we thought we could draw. Yeah. But then like, hey, you're not <laughs> supposed to draw. So, you know, like, and the teacher, you know, you go behind the line, you start feeling, well, I'm terrible because, you know, I'm complaining and my mind is not as good as the girls sitting next to me. But um, we can draw. It's just a matter of, believing that we have these capacities and the vulnerability part isn't a weakness. In fact, I think it takes a stronger mind to have an open mind because it's not just being open to everything. It's having an open mind, like that person standing at the edge of the cliff where, you know, there's danger, but you're also willing to explore what does it look like to see the the Canyon? How therapeutic is, is the writing process for you? The, the book mind blown to, to have it out and, and available now. I mean, uh, how therapeutic was the writing process and, and how much did you personally, uh, gain from it as well? Yeah. I think one thing that just creating anything does is just, it, it is healing. Writing is kind of like looking at yourself in the mirror and you don't want to do that. At least no. I don't want to do that. So I'm kind of like, I'm writing. And so when, you, when you're writing a book and you're putting it all down, that process is really a painful process because you're realizing, you know, wow, um, some of these thoughts don't make sense. Some of them make great sense, but I don't know. And then you go to an editor and others um, to help you. You know, they can say, you know, what did you mean by that? And, and so that process, though, it's a certain kind of humility and it really does heal you. Um, I, I think I've been in situations where, you know, I've lost everything, I lost a home, lost a job, lost my community. And, you know, sometimes we don't know how to, um, lament or grieve or move on. How we do that is we have to, um, you know, create something new. Something has to end for something to begin. And so 
I had in the writing process, I was ending a lot of things as well as starting something new. Um, you know, I'm no longer this young church musician who's cool. I'm like, you know, now I'm rich, you know, this guy with a white beard who, you know, now <laughs> I consult people. I have young people that I, you know, they pay me to talk, talk to them and, and coach them. And, and I have institutions that, you know, I'm, I'm like the, from the warrior to the sage now. And so you had, that's a loss too. So, you know, you, I want to get out there. Well, you can't, my knees say no way. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's like, it's healing though to create and creating begets more creating. I mentioned in the book, it's like when I create something, it, it helps someone else create something. It's like this ripple effect that it, it, it's beyond me. It's bigger than me. In fact, one of the studies I quote in the book was this, uh, writing where they had uh, cancer and then they took journals about, um, you know, their pain, their traumas, mm -hmm. physical pain. They did this for emotional pain. There's several studies out now actually about it. And they, the, the cancer patients actually got better were the ones who are showed improvement, who were the ones who journaled. And they said, when as people journal, they started with me, 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 and they went to we, the language changed. So I think that's when we journal or create, which is part of like a creative process. Mm -hmm. When we do it honestly and really freely, we really start with like, this is me, but we end up with this is we. And I think that's what it really should look like. Hmm. That's, that's an interesting look at it. That's an interesting. Now, now you, you talked about our imagination and, and having those ideas out there. And I'm one of those that I've always got a million ideas going on. How do you decipher from the good ones, from uh, is there something that sets them apart uh, it, it, in maybe your brain, your heart that tells you yay or nay? I think that's where like having a process is good because you realize there's a point of generating ideas. They call it they call it idea generation, and then there's a point of sorting the ideas and editing the ideas. And uh, frankly, there's some of us who are better at different points, and that's where the three steps, the you know, the discover, develop, and deliver came in because it would help us zone in on one area. Like, okay, say you're the dreamer. You can, you can generate a thousand ideas and most of them are pretty good, I bet. But then how then you do that is you, you uh, impose uh, limitations. And really what that is, is then you take all those ideas and say there's 50 ideas for a painting. And then you figure, well, here's the canvas I was given from the a client who commissioned the painting. And it's this size, whatever the size is, 12 by nine. And, and so then I look at my ideas and say, which of these ideas best goes on the 12 by nine canvas? And so you basically have to force decisions. And some people are really good at this, but it's hard. Um, sometimes those are ideas that you feel really emotionally connected to. This is me talking, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and some aren't. Um, and it's easy to throw out. So this is kind of where we bring in editors, we bring in friends, we bring in, you know, a producer if you're a musician to kind of clean up. Uh, that's, you know, they get give you that. But the truth is this though, to not be afraid is that more ideas scientists say actually create better ideas and not just because you have more ideas, but percentage wise, better ideas because hmm. it's like a muscle in your brain, that imagination muscle muscle I was talking about. So really it's just a process of saying, okay, I'm great at this developing or um, discovering ideas, but developing ideas, maybe that's the zone I need to discover. And I talk about it in the book, I actually have some you know, practices you can use to you know, ask now what for you, Rich, how much has, has life changed uh, as a result of social media online and all that as, as your creative process, do those, do those really help or, or, or do you just have to finally figure out what's the best process for you? 
Well, that's a great question. It's, it's, I've been a blogger since 2005. Wow. So, so that's ancient. <laughs> and that's why my, my Twitter's called RK Weblog because it used to be called a weblog. Yes, it and did. And that's dating myself to how old it was. Um, I used to, you know, be so nerdy that I had a, 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 a extra line for a modem, even though we could not afford it. So, but I think what it's done is it's, it's created a pathway um, to meet people like yourself, for instance, and, and to learn about the world. Um, but it's also the negative side has made it harder to connect to those people that live right around you and, and to feel like you're, you know, um, you're seen, you know, ironically. So I think what it's done is and when you create now, like, you know, I have a group called the beautiful liturgy. Um, it's a lot harder to get people, you know, to even click on something, you know, they're like, I have so many people asking for my attention. So really the, the, the idea is how can I get people's attention? Well, then there's people who use, let me just make a train wreck. And I know friends who do that. So people can't turn away. That's my goal. You know, one of my friends and he was pretty successful for a season of time doing that. And then I think got burned out on that. Um, but I, I think what it's changed is the struggle of thinking viral versus um, authentic. I believe that being viral is cool, but if you're not authentic, it doesn't matter. Um, and so what I want to do is to convince myself that why I'm not trying to look for a big stage as an author. Like, you know, I could probably, you know, I could be a decent speaker. I could probably do a decent job. I'm, I'm planning these things called creative nights where I just show up and there's like someone's backyard or they're, or maybe just in a corner of the pub, hang out with 20 people. We talk about the creative process and, mm -hmm. and, and hear their stories and learn from each other. And this is kind of different. It's kind of like when musicians do these house shows, they call them, mm -hmm. you know, there's a place it's even like, like below the bar, you know, going to a, a pub or something at the house show, but it's a, but it's an important place to want to be as a creative person because we're so, you know, the best thing about social media is that it's a dialogue. The worst thing about it is that it tricks us into thinking that it's always a dialogue. Um, it is super noisy. If I could get myself in situations where like, even like this, we could just sit and have half hour or whatever, just to talk. Um, then it adds value to my life. Um, but I think a lot of us are lonely. Um, the pandemic was really hard. My wife was in education and, you know, that was hard for her and her staff mm, at school to, yeah. to measure the parents going nuts with little kids. Cause it's, you know, excuse me, <laughs> when you have little kids, it's rough. Yeah. I don't have little kids, so I'm great right now. But, <laughs> but anyway, all that to say it's changed, but, um, the human need for, um, community and the human need for that is, is I think those of us who are creators, if we look at it that way, don't look at it as I want the power of a platform, but I want the, the microphone to be not just a microphone. I want it to simply be like, I'm in your living room and I'm your friend. I'm sitting at coffee, coffee, you know, someday we'll sit down coffee, hopefully, you know, somewhere. And, yeah, exactly. and that's real. That's the idea. If we could capture that in our social media and in our media in general, I think that's important. Um, there's so much noise, so many people trying to be super hip or cool or edgy. And I just want to be rich because that's all I know how to be. And if what I write and work super, super hard to, to come up with helps people, then that's awesome. That's cool. Now, you, you talked about the group uh, Beautiful Liturgy. I want to give you a chance just to, just to tell our listeners uh, a little bit about uh, your latest work with them as well. 
Yeah, we, uh, my daughter and I have a collaborative group called The Beautiful Liturgy. She's in her 20s and I'm not. And <laughs> our idea is, so how do we create music for our church that's intergenerational and brings in some tradition? But if you don't know tradition, it, it doesn't matter. You can understand mm-hmm. it and it, it's inviting. It's like creating a, you know, two chefs, an old one and a young one getting together, trying to, to, to find out how to cook for their family. So we created this little group called The Beautiful Liturgy and um, we wanted to make something beautiful, lasting. We're not looking at it as, you know, fast food um, music. We're looking at it as something that, you know, you can sit down and really enjoy and um, kind of, I guess we're boutique in that way, um, <laughs> which is bad in music business to say of yourself. Right? <laughs> but at the same time, again, it doesn't matter. It's about relationships. And we had our last house concert was on February, 2020. Wow. And the week after that, all of our touring and all of our plans went the wayside. But in that, we did um, have a single that came out um, that, that's um, in a video even. We snuck into church and made a video. Um, so, yeah, so we're still writing and we're kind of now, this is a new season. We just moved to the Bay Area in California. Now, what do we do? Right. So we still have to figure that out. Oh, but by, by the way, on the book, uh, I collaborate with my beautiful liturgy uh, collaborator, Emily. My daughter, she's the illustrator in the book. And so we got pictures. Those of us who like pictures in the books, um, she did a, a great job. So, Rich, if folks want to find more info about uh, Mind Blown, about uh, Beautiful Liturgy, and, uh, and all of your other works as well, where's the, where's the best place to, uh, to catch up with everything? You can go to rkblog.com and slash Mind Blown, which will go directly to the book. But rkblog.com will show you um, kind of all those things on our front page that's cool well rich it's uh it's been great to visit with you brother i appreciate you sending out the book i got a little bit into it last night uh looking to finish that over the weekend and uh hopefully brother we can catch up again real soon i hope so too and definitely with some good coffee And if you're at a gas station, there's always an outside chance of a fire, but not like this. A man in Detroit went to a gas station early Tuesday and ordered a pack of Swisher Sweets cigars. But when he lit up, he didn't like the smell. He thought it had cologne on it. Well, he went to the clerk and tried to get his money back, but the clerk refused. The clerk said the guy was the one wearing cologne. So the guy went outside, filled a bucket with gas, opened the door, dumped the gas inside, and lit the place on fire. Now, fortunately, the clerk was able to escape and no one was injured. Now, the police do have a suspect in custody, but they haven't released his name. And as you might expect, the gas station suffered a severe torching. And finally, for some reason, learning to play the recorder in elementary school became an American tradition. Now, most people haven't touched a recorder since then, but some people are bummed that they didn't stick with it. In a survey on instruments, 9% of people say that they regret that they no longer play the recorder. 11% regret putting down the trombone, and more than half of the people who learned the guitar at some point wish that they still played. Now, some instruments, like the recorder, are taught in school or through lessons, but others are more commonly self-taught. Now, the top instrument that's self-taught is the harmonica. 65% of people learned it on their own, 
Which makes sense, although 9% of harmonica players say that they took harmonica lessons, possibly, I guess, from some kind of harmonica guru. Now, the other most self-taught instruments are the ukulele, the electric guitar, the electric piano, the electric bass, the drums, and the guitar. The least self-taught instruments are the trumpet, the recorder, the clarinet, the flute, the saxophone, the violin, and the piano. Well, I do truly want to say thanks again for joining us for this 11th episode in Season 3 of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. If you ever have a comment, a question, or anything else you'd like to know, you can hit me up on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook at the Cameron Dole. And if you have a special guest idea, again, email me, gqwithcam at gmail.com. Well, we're going to send it out with our good friend Brandon Allen, who came up with our theme music when we first began. We're going to let him play us out and hope you guys have a great rest of your evening.